Please listen carefully. I would say to people, America is the only country I've ever lived in whose diversity was so welcoming that you can be exactly who you are and easily find acceptance in a community of like-minded people. I even penned a love letter waxing lyrical about her greatness. Then, Donald Trump happened. That's a taste of what you can expect in this episode of The Week That Was at Global Voices, the podcast where we introduce you to people, places, and events from around the world that aren't getting the media coverage they deserve. I'm Sahar, Managing Editor at Global Voices. I live right outside of San Francisco. And I'm Lauren, News Editor at Global Voices. I live in Bilbao, Spain. The Week That Was podcast takes a look at some of the stories that have recently come out of the Global Voices newsroom. This week, we'll take you to Cuba, Syria, Taiwan, and the United States for stories of love and free expression in times of adversity and even hate. First, to the U.S., where not too long ago, Donald Trump was elected to be the next president of the country. Throughout the presidential race, Trump and his campaign regularly demeaned entire groups of people. But in the end, that racism, xenophobia, and misogyny wasn't rejected, but instead validated at the polls when Trump nabbed enough states to win the presidency. His victory has come at great distress to many in the country and around the world. At home, members of minority communities say they fear for their safety in this new America. After the election, Omar Mohammed was left wondering just what happened to the America he had fallen in love with. Omar is a Tanzanian journalist and Global Voices contributor, and he's here now to narrate his piece titled, America, I used to love you. Two years ago, I flew from coast of East Africa and landed in Phoenix, Arizona to take up a journalism fellowship at Arizona State University's Walter Cronkite School of Journalism. While I had been visiting the U.S. at least once a year since 2012, this was going to be the first time that I would live there, and it was an exciting moment. My affection for America runs deep. Like many of my generation, I grew up watching American movies, dancing to her music, reading her writers, and playing her sports. In fact, the country has had such a profound impact on me that I became a journalist in large because of an American film. As a 14-year-old, I saw the great Denzel Washington play Grey Grantham in the Pelican Brief. A fearless reporter who, with the help of Julia Roberts' law student, exposes a murderous conspiracy by an oil magnet to stack up the U.S. Supreme Court with justices friendly to his interests. I was hooked. To paraphrase Method Man, I was like, this is the truth, forget everything else, this is what I'd like to do with my life. And the year I lived in Arizona only served to confirm my admiration for the U.S. I would say to people, America is the only country I've ever lived in whose diversity was so welcoming that you can be exactly who you are and easily find acceptance in a community of like-minded people. I even penned a love letter waxing lyrical about her greatness. Then, Donald Trump happened. Much has been written about the man's xenophobia and racism. To me, the most extraordinary aspect of his rise is how easily he wears his bigotry. 
He doesn't dog whistle, to borrow a turn of phrase. He straight up uses a regular human whistle, as a former colleague put it, and openly declares his disdain for Muslims, Latinos, African Americans and women. Yet, people have responded to his message, voting for him in droves. The 13 million votes he secured to win the Republican primary was the highest number garnered by a party nominee in history. I was dumbfounded. Who are these Americans supporting this bigot, I asked myself. I couldn't square Trump and his voters with the folks I got to know during my time in Phoenix. Like my professor, Dr. Bill Selcock, director of a journalism program that hosts people from all over the world, and a deeply spiritual man with whom I would talk about Islam and its history. Nor did Trump's worldview match with Peter Bhatia, now the editor at the Cincinnati Inquirer. Bhatia and I bonded of our shared love of hoops and spent countless hours watching the Phoenix Suns play. Trump's intolerance is also at odds with the generosity I experienced spending time with Sandy Barr, a lifetime advocate for the environment, and her husband Dave, my host family who treated me like a son. Nor did it match with the dedication of Christy Capes, who patiently and always with grace helped me and my colleagues better adjust to the complexity of life in America. Then there's Andrew Leakey, Catherine McManus, and Rita Hill, my mentors, whose wise counsel helped my career advance. These people and the value they embody deepen my love for America. So even as Trump was barreling his way to the Republican nomination, they provided me with a counterpoint to his narrow vision of America. It turns out they were the exception rather than the rule. On November 8, 2016, over 50 million Americans, mostly white, handed the presidency to a man despite, or maybe because of, his contempt for non-white people. Coming to terms with the idea that people voted for Trump either because they shared in his racism and bigotry or that they were willing to overlook those things is soul-crushing. Perhaps it is unfair to call Trump voters racist. A friend of mine says, labeling people like this is what has led to this moment. It is flippant and dismissive and suggests an inability to understand those who think and act in ways different from us. It says to folks that their concerns and fears about the frenetic changes happening in their communities are not valid. Could it be that these voters, most of whom are white, chose Trump as a way to reassert control over a country they may believe is leaving them behind? In other words, was it their way of saying, we still matter in this new America? Perhaps. Yet, one cannot escape, in David Remnick's words, the cruelty of the decision to elevate a man who drips with disdain for those who don't look like him. This white lash, as the great Van Jones put it, has killed the very thing that makes America great. Millions around the world treasure the American ideal. Whether myth or reality, it is a powerful idea nonetheless. That whatever your creed or background, America will welcome you. After all, this is a country that chose as its president twice the son of a Kenyan, whose story, as he tells it, is only possible in America. By electing Donald Trump, however, a hood chunk of white America is abandoning that promise and telling the world, fuck diversity, 
religious freedoms, and the whole notion of pluralism. In post-11-9 America, the white man is back in charge, they said. In all this, I've been thinking about Khizr Khan, the father of a soldier who died in Iraq, and what he said on the eve of the election. At a rally for Hillary Clinton, Mr. Khan engaged in a call and response with the crowd. Donald Trump, would my son, Captain Humayun Khan, have a place in your America? Mr. Khan asked. The audience responded with a resounding, No! Would Muslims have a place in your America? No! The crowd bellowed. Would Latinos have a place in your America? No! They replied. Would African Americans have a place in your America? No! They said, their voices growing louder. Would anyone who's not like you have a place in America? He got a unanimous and vociferous, No! Mr. Khan concluded by saying, Thankfully, Mr. Trump, this isn't your America. 36 hours later, Mr. Khan has been rebuked. The country for which his son gave his life had sent him a message. This is now Trump's country, the message said. And people who look like Mr. Khan may not have a place in this new America anymore. And that breaks my heart. Salam, Chetorin. That's hi. How are you in Persian? And I'm Masa, the Global Voices Iran editor. Do you want to read more about the topics we mention in this podcast? Well, you can find them and so much more on globalvoices.org, or find us on Twitter at the handle Global Voices, or on Facebook.com/globalvoicesonline. Merci au Khodafez. At the end of October, tens of thousands of people poured into the streets of Taiwan to take part in Asia's biggest gay pride parade. It was a colorful celebration of love and acceptance in a place where same-sex marriage isn't legal. But there is a significant push to make it legal. And that movement was given renewed urgency following the tragic death of a well-known artist and French teacher about two weeks before Pride. On October 17th, Jacques-Camille Picot was found dead outside his apartment building in Taipei one year after the loss of his partner to cancer. Jacques had fallen from the top floor of the 10-story building. The police did not find any signs of foul play. Jacques' students and friends believed he was driven to death out of depression following his partner's passing in October of 2015. They said the fact that their partnership wasn't legally recognized had left Jacques in agony. Yen Zhongli, a former student of Jacques, explained last year in a Facebook post just how painful of an experience it was for Jacques at the end of his partner's life. Jacques and his partner were together for 35 years, she wrote. Then, Jacques' partner was diagnosed with cancer, and his health rapidly deteriorated. His partner wished to leave Jacques money and allow him to continue living in the apartment they had shared. But they weren't legally married. Their relationship had no legal protection or recognition. Jacques' partner's family began to divvy up the property for themselves. They also gave medical directives that Jacques knew went against what his partner wanted, but there was nothing Jacques could do about it. 
His partner eventually passed away, and a year later, so did Jacques. After his death, many Taiwanese began to push for the passage of the Marriage Equality Act, which would legalize same-sex marriage. The bill was presented in 2012 and had its first reading in 2013. However, after a massive mobilization against same-sex marriage in 2014, it was suspended. Finally, about a week after Jacques died, a group of legislators revised and submitted the bill once again. And a few days later, the LGBTQ community of Taiwan celebrated Pride Parade. The theme? Shatter the mask of hypocritical kindness. Because as Jacques' death proved, Taiwan may be considered one of the most LGBT-friendly Asian countries, but being friendly isn't always enough. In war, the things people love the most can be wrenched away from them, their home, their safety, their family. Dima Youssef knows this all too well. She's a 30-year-old poet and Arabic language teacher who was born and raised in Yarmouk refugee camp outside of the Syrian capital of Damascus. Last year, Dima, her mother, and her two sisters fled Syria for Algeria. Her mother had decided that it was far too dangerous to keep living in Syria, where a civil war has raged for more than five years. Her mother had reason to worry. In 2013, their home was destroyed by shelling. The same year, Dima's father was killed by a sniper. And in late 2014, Dima was arrested by Syrian security forces. She was accused of being active on Facebook pages that opposed President Bashar al-Assad's regime. Dima has been outspoken in her online support of peaceful protests and condemnation of repression, but she never considered herself a political activist. In fact, she said she was simply calling out injustice as she saw it. Nevertheless, she spent two weeks in detention. She was not tortured or humiliated like others jailed for political reasons in Syria, but the experience has had a profound effect on her. Dima now lives in the Algerian capital of Algiers. She says there are many similarities between exile and imprisonment. The alienation, the loneliness, the uncertainty, and a feeling that time is frozen and that her life is on hold. Dima finds strength in writing poetry, which she publishes on Facebook. Sahar will narrate for us now an English translation of one of Dima's poems, an untitled piece about the loss of her father. Many thanks to our contributor, Badur Hassan, for originally reporting on Dima and her work for the Global Voices website. With their black banners, they blindfolded us, having extinguished the last glimmer of hope through which we could see the camp. We had packed our dreams before packing our bags. Mother had made your favorite jam and set aside the last remaining olive jar in the pantry to be opened only in celebration of your presence. She is still postponing all your favorite dishes to a table which doesn't miss your plate. And whenever she invites us to eat, she, thinking of your hunger, still says, come, let's swallow this swill. A few days ago, she said, stroking the wound of your absence, let's assume he's traveling. How angelic mothers are, they even mother their wounds. 
The distance separating us from you can be measured in feet. Mother has decided to consider the hour's walk to you a journey, just to stanch her bleeding, stabbed by one vile checkpoint, preventing her from hugging you. A single checkpoint that would have become, had God granted my mother's prayers, a phone booth, a cigarette stand, or a lingerie bin. This winter has been very hard without you. My woolen scarves, which you no longer share with me, remain cold without warmth, an orgy of color devoid of meaning that I wrap around my neck and that only serves to stifle my breaths. I remember our quarrels after one of them that I saw on the shoulders of one of your friends. How could I have known that these young men would soon grow up into impossibly tall men with just dreams and short, brittle lives? Your friends, with whom I'm proud now to have shared colored woolen yarns one winter, those woolen scarves which one day touched the heart of a would-be martyr or a would-be detainee. Among them are my most treasured possessions. We had packed our dreams before packing our bags. Our steps beat us to a ruin on whose sides grass had grown when it found out that we were coming back. Our kisses beat us to those eyes that emerged from the night in their broad daylight and from death pregnant with life. Our songs, our poems, and our vows of love beat us. My hands beat me to your precious face and my head to your shoulder. My tears beat me to a body that had blended with the soil of the camp. There, in the martyr cemetery, on the left, the third grave beyond the tree, burdened with ancient sorrows, my tears take refuge between my ribs. To you, my father, my martyr, a proud, brave man who would have surely been destroyed by his indignation at seeing hunger rampaging on the bodies of the young, unstoppable. Thank you, bullet that claimed my father's life before he was claimed by indignation. Thank you, sniper who performed his ablution with his blood. Thank you, father's blood, which brought closure to the scene. To the Yormuk, my hands, my head, and my tears beat me, and I couldn't catch up with them. Now, I'm without hands, without a head, and without tears. Facing all this cruelty, helpless, without hope, alone. Hola, amigos. That's Hello Friends in Spanish. I'm Juan Tadeo. I'm with the Latin America team here at Global Voices. Say, are you liking this podcast? You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and many other podcast apps. Be sure to subscribe, give us an upvote, or please leave us a comment. Muchas gracias. That's thank you. On October 4th, a deadly hurricane named Matthew tore through the Caribbean. Almost a thousand people in Haiti were killed and countless houses, infrastructure, and crops were destroyed. In Cuba, there were no reported fatalities, but Matthew nevertheless inflicted serious damage on the country's east. Unsurprisingly, members of the Cuban and international press began to report on these devastating effects. But while doing so, 
a group of Cuban journalists were detained and interrogated for a day by the country's state security officials. They were working for a new media project called Periodismo Barrio, or Neighborhood Journalism, which was launched in 2015 in an effort to improve local reporting on the environment and infrastructure. What began as an effort to document a natural disaster became a story about the limits of press freedom. The team behind Periodismo de Barrio, which is the Global Voices partner, published a powerful editorial about their experience and what it means in the context of Cuba's state-dominated media landscape. Global Voices contributors Andrea Chong-Bras and Sarah Holmes translated it to English. Global Voices Spanish-language editor Feruse Shoku Baye is here now to read a portion of that editorial, titled, Who Has the Right to Tell a Country's Story? October 11, 2016. Six members of the team from Periodismo de Barrio and two collaborators were detained in the city of Baracoa, located in the province of Guantanamo. We were not detained for smiling. We were not detained for taking a photo of the state cafeteria located on La Gobernadora viewpoint and publishing it on our personal Facebook account. We were not detained for using the online service PayPal in our public fundraising campaign that allowed us to cover the recovery process of communities affected by Hurricane Matthew. We were detained for doing journalism in Baracoa, in Maicí, in Inias, three of the main municipalities affected by the storm. Specifically, we were detained for interviewing or trying to interview the local government in Inias, the power line workers who were trying to restore electrical service, the victims, the families who evacuated vulnerable individuals, the school teachers, cooks, and school directors who lost roofs as well as books, the medical clinics that were damaged, the men and women who saved other men and women, as well as their animals and plants. Those of us who went to Maisi were interrogated by state security officials at the headquarters of the Municipal Committee of the Communist Party of Cuba while trying to obtain authorization to work in the area. Those of us who came to Hamal were detained in the home where we were staying. The justification for our arrest was that in Baracoa, in Maisi, and in Imias, one could not perform journalistic activities because all these cities were under a state of emergency. As part of the state of emergency, which the Cuban authorities never publicly announced, the exercise of journalism in the affected areas was restricted to those media that received accreditation to work there. Neither Law 75 of National Defense nor the Constitution of the Republic nor the Code of Ethics of the Union of Cuban Journalists, to which two of our colleagues belong, regulate the exercise of journalism during situations of natural disasters. During emergency situations, Law 75 guarantees that the fundamental rights of the Constitution shall not be excluded or suspended, which includes freedom of speech and press. Periodismo de Barrio did not violate any law. We did not come to Baracoa 
with the goal of acting outside of the law. None of our members knew we would need to be accredited before heading to Guantanamo province. Nevertheless, if we had tried to do so, we would not have had a representative to approach. Unlike state and foreign media, Periodismo de Barrio does not have a public official in Cuba from whom we can ask authorization to perform journalistic work in a given region. Because of this, that night, in the municipal headquarters of the Ministry of the Interior, we asked for the required authorization to do the stories we had already planned. The answer, which came the next day, was a refusal. All of us journalists were then driven to the Ministry of the Interior's Operations Unit in Guantanamo, escorted by the 205th Patrol of the State Security Department. There, we were interrogated a second time, and our technical equipment was confiscated. We had to hand over our passwords and cameras, digital recorders, laptops, flash drives, electronic book readers, and cell phones, all of which were looked over for at least four hours. They informed us that the images and recordings from our work in the province would be erased and our electronic equipment returned. The three women that formed part of Periodismo de Barrio's team were physically examined by an official looking for other technical tools that could have been hidden in our bodies, a treatment given to suspects in pre-criminal cases. They didn't do the same to our male counterparts. Our technical equipment was then returned and none of the files related to our work were erased. The whole time, we maintained a respectful and cooperative attitude. We answered all of their questions about Periodismo de Barrio, our means of funding, the work we wished to do in the province, our previous journalism experience, the academic training we have, and the origins and final destination of the individual donations of clothes, food, and personal hygiene products that we brought to the province. Throughout the day, October 11th, and until we were released on October 12th at around 8 p.m., not a single charge or accusation of any crime was brought against the members of Periodismo de Barrio. We left Guantanamo the same as when we arrived, innocent. But innocence was not reason enough to avoid this arbitrary arrest. In a context where the law only recognizes the existence of state and foreign media accredited by the Center of International Press, Periodismo de Barrio sits right on the edge between these two groups. We are the result of the evolution of technological platforms for communicating information of public interest university education and professional needs that cannot find a place in the existing media, and we are not the only ones. Numerous media have been created within the last year without any guarantee of legal recognition or protection for practicing the profession. The majority of the published stories by these same media demonstrate reliability, balance in their use of sources, a high ethical commitment, and a profound respect for the realities in all their plurality of our country. 
we also recognize that there are stories that require greater research and informational rigor. The existence of these media outlets for both readers and for the hundreds of professionals gathered around them should start an inclusive public debate about the ownership structure of the press. This debate could open up space for a media law in which at least cooperative ownership would be considered alongside state ownership, among other forms of social and public models regarding these types of media. We understand that the public character of the Cuban press is guaranteed not solely by governmental ownership of the media, but it is not possible to tell the truth about Cuba from only one viewpoint or from unanimous viewpoints that are the equivalent of one. The Constitution of the Republic of Cuba in Article 53 recognizes the freedom of speech and press in agreement with those ends of a socialist society for its citizens. And it specifies that mass media are state or social property and in no case can they be objects of private property which ensures their use for the exclusive service of the working class and in the interest of society. Nevertheless, because of the way in which this logic has been implemented, we have not achieved the plain exercise of freedom of press and speech, nor have we ensured the exclusive use of media in service of the people. What we have achieved, paradoxically, is a new monopolization of information, of journalistic discourses, and of the truth. All monopolization by the state, an individual, or a corporation ends up restricting freedoms, making socialism the Cuban way appropriate for our circumstances does not constitute a license to violate inseparable principles of socialism. One does not found a socialist society by reproducing structures of domination. Periodismo de Barrio publishes articles and investigative reports that try to delve deeper into the reality that we live in. Cuban state media and institutions like the Civil Defense Organization and the Meteorological Institute have always carried out extensive coverage before, during, and after any extreme weather event. However, the news cycle moves fast, and oftentimes the victims no longer make headlines a couple of weeks or months after the natural disaster occurs. Other realities occupy our newspapers' agendas. It is the media's duty to follow the recovery process, which usually takes years. It is the media's duty to accompany the most vulnerable. It is the media's duty to scrutinize the revolution and make sure that it doesn't, in effect, leave anyone abandoned. This phrase is often used just after a hurricane hits and it is later forgotten by some public servants charged with turning it into food and shelter. This scrutiny should not be seen as a threat, but rather as a right to hold our public representatives to account. 
that's a wrap. This is Sahar. And Lauren. Wondering how we find these stories? Well, we're not like other news organizations. Global Voices is an international network of passionate people who know their way around the internet and keep tabs on the conversations happening in their regions. Our 1,400 mostly volunteer writers, editors, and translators cover stories from 167 countries and translate them into more than 30 languages. Together, we've been building bridges of understanding, as we like to call them, through our digital reporting since 2005. This episode was made possible by all the inspiring work of our Global Voices authors, translators, and editors. So many thanks to all you out there. Don't forget, if you like what you heard, please share this episode with your friends on Facebook and Twitter. In this episode, we featured Creative Commons licensed music from the Free Music Archive, including Please Listen Carefully by Jazzer, and What You'd Be Without Her by Dr. Turtle, Solitude by Jazzer, Crying Earth by Kai Engel, and I Felt Too Much in Love by Nick Jaina. Special thanks to our Global Voices contributor, Andrea Arzaba, for helping with the music. Thanks for tuning in to the week that was at Global Voices. We'll have a new episode for you again in two weeks. Until then, 